All right, let us stand for our uh, teaching text tonight. And um, let's go ahead and turn to Luke 16. That's where we're going to be. And uh, specifically, we're going to take a look at verses 19 through 31 tonight. This is the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So let us read Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It was, it, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here... To you cannot, nor can those pass from us from there to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, to, he said No, Father, Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We ask for the spirit to illumine our hearts with its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. So we've now come to the end of chapter 16 in the Gospel of Luke, and we've seen Uh, We've seen Jesus address the sin of the Pharisees by first providing a parable. And you remember he directly rebuked the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. And now by telling another parable, commonly referred to as the rich man and Lazarus. And really the overarching theme here is that Jesus is exhorting that it is very possible to seem righteous before others but at the same time, be an abomination to the Lord. And in the parable today, we're going to actually see how God judges such hypocrisy. Now, Jesus continues to teach to us the priority of the heart. There's a lot of external outward signs that are of interest still to us today. But we cannot hide our true sins and true nature of our heart before God. God knows the heart. And by way of application, we'll see that the importance of The importance of being on guard for pride and self-righteousness in our own hearts and ensure that we give attention to the condition of our soul. So with that introduction, let's take a look at this teaching starting in verses 19 through 21. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. A very graphic picture of this poor man. But what we're really given is a a great contrast. I mean, these two men, economically and socially, really, are just complete opposites. Perhaps the most opposites you can get. You see, the rich man was not just rich, he was exceedingly rich. He, he lived in opulence. This purple he wore was not only very expensive, um, just to get that color back at that time, they actually had to extract it from snail oil. I mean, I can't imagine the process. And it was really typically just reserved for kings, but we see this man, not, not only that, but he didn't really seem to work. He just kind of feasted every day. He was incredibly wealthy, but notice the scripture never gives him a name. But in contrast, we have a beggar, right away named Lazarus, who was the complete opposite, economically and socially. And notice Lazarus had to be laid at the gate of the rich man, which of course means he probably couldn't walk. So in addition to all his other challenges, he was probably crippled, maybe found some friends each day to lay him there to beg. But not only was he destitute and poor, but he was suffering from some sorts of disease or exceedingly poor health. He was effectively wasting away and hungry. I mean, when you're just begging for a crumb, yeah, you've got to be pretty hungry. Now, notice the poor man. He's completely rejected by society. He really wasn't begging for much. He was just wanting the crumbs. But notice some things. He didn't, at least our text doesn't tell us, he didn't seem to complain. He wasn't asking for beyond his needs, right? He was just hoping actually for some, the throwaways of the opulent rich man. Just Maybe something. Wasn't looking to take from anyone, as it were, right? Crumbs are just what you dropped. And then we have this graphic picture of the man's condition of the dogs licking his sores. Now, these were not nice little dogs like we have in our home. This is not Hamish. This is not Pippin. These are like wild dogs, okay? And, uh, and they, they kind of tormented him. I mean, I don't think they just licked him. They, they, they were prob- they're ferocious animals. And he was too weak that he, to even fend them off. Just miserable. I mean, that's the picture where he's just a miserable existence. But notice he's given a name. What's his name? Lazarus. And what does Lazarus mean? God helps. This is a wonderful picture. God helps. What a name. So from the text, we see some other interesting facts about these men. Well, first of all, we know they're both Jews, right? Um, and we can tell from that later in the story... And they at least knew somewhat, some recognition of the scripture. Even the rich man uh, called on Abraham, knew who Abraham was. There was some name recognition there. Uh, but, but, he, but he also knew, if he knew the scriptures, he knew he should have cared for this poor man, right, according to God's law. And uh, it's interesting that the rich man knew Lazarus' name, even though he completely ignored him. So he, he knew. I mean, he can't use the excuse of ignorance, right? But Lazarus, the incredibly poor man, again, he seemed to uh, not really beg. You know, he wasn't a beggar. He wasn't a complainer. He trusted in God. And he sat there content waiting upon God. And so now we have the situation of what happened to these two men. Uh, we're told that both men died. Both men died. And uh, we see that there's uh, really no mention of what happens to Lazarus's body. Did you notice that? It's just... He died, and immediately the next scene is he's there in Abraham's bosom. 
Uh, but what happened to his body, do you think? I mean, no one cared about this man in the first place, or when he's dead, they certainly didn't care about him. And back in this time, he was probably just thrown outside of the city gates, his dead body. But notice the rich man died and was buried. And in fact, a man with such wealth, he probably had quite an elaborate funeral. Perhaps it had a lot of people come. In fact, they probably said nice things, even as we do for atheists these days. But Lazarus' soul was immediately taken to heaven by who? By the angels, it says. And there is an immediate, he goes from the state of miserableness to quickly, rapidly, to the state of comfort and, and adoration almost by the angels over this man. Uh, sitting next to Abraham, as it were. And we don't, you know, we don't talk in these kind of words often, but we see that he was given an honor. He was honored, as it were, there by the angels, given, taken uh, to, to be in heaven by Abraham's bosom. He was now enjoying the company of God's people. Well, what about the rich man? What happened to him? What a change. What a rapid change. A, a life of luxury and comfort suddenly, rapidly gone. Now, all those earthly possessions and comfort are gone. And he's no longer a rich man. He is he is the destitute one. He is the alone one. He is now the tormented one. And so we give, we're given this interesting picture. The rich man in hell is now completely tormented, whereas Lazarus, who was tormented, is no longer tormented. And we have this interesting picture uh, given where somehow, you know, and it's a parable, but somehow the rich man in hell could see could see Lazarus there at, in, resting at Abraham's bosom. It's very interesting. And how he is given the pleasures of Abraham's company. But we, want, we see now, after seeing that, how does the rich man respond? So in verses 24 through 26, Then he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented with this flame. Interesting response. But but we're going to see some very striking things about this rich man. Uh, Unfortunately, he is so warped by his self-oriented life, he's been so pampered, he doesn't know what it is to work. He's, he's only known luxury. That's all he knows, is that he's served by others. And so, despite being humbled in hell, right, in Hades, he still asks Abraham to send Lazarus to go serve him. He's like, all I know how to do is ask people to serve me. I don't even know how to do anything else. So that, yeah, that guy that was, at, can you have him help me, please? Wow. I mean, what, a, what an incredible mind warp that, that self-orientation does to us, that self-righteousness does to us. And notice something else. And this is, this is really telling. He wants Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. Now, when we typically think of hell, we think we, we don't exactly know what that's going to be like. It's very sad. But we know that there's fire and there's some kind of tormenting going on. But his tongue is hot. What's going on there? Well, we see he's not just being burned on the outside. 
He's burned on the inside. This is a comprehensive tormenting fire. He wants water to cool his tongue. And so hell is described in the Bible as a place of darkness, a place of torment, anguish, flame, suffering forever. It's an unquenchable fire. It's the outpouring of God's wrath upon the wicked. And note that despite the fire and torment, the wicked never die. It's a lake of fire which burns with brimstone, punishment so fearsome that there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you ever think about that? There's two responses, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's talk about the first one. Why would someone go to hell and weep? Probably because they realized, no, God, no, no, I can't be here. That's the weeping. And then we have the gnashing of teeth. What is gnashing of teeth? It's anger. God, how dare you put me here? And so these are the responses of those. And surely enough, we really see the same thing from the rich man. He's still self-right. He's still wanting to be served even though he's been incredibly humbled in hell. And hell is, hell is horrible. Endless excruciating pain, inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness, everlasting hopelessness. Those in hell will be the objects of God's wrath and will never experience his love. Oh. But to understand hell rightly, we must remember the power of God. We, we know that our God is powerful, amen? God's wrath poured out upon man eternally Remember that with the same power of the power of our God, maker of heaven and earth. And so surely his wrath is powerful. And hell, hell is not something to joke about. And it's very sad how our society, our culture loves to just joke about hell. Um, And unfortunately, even the church has minimized and watered down what hell will be like. Uh, Some will say hell is separation from God. And not exactly. It's separation from his grace, for sure. But saying hell is separation from God just kind of makes it sound like a neutral, boring place. Well, you'll just be over there in the corner. That's not what it is. It's not what it is. It's perpetual torment from the one true holy God. And I don't want to offend anyone here or anyone listening, but I I do want to say this. Sometimes, even us, will go through a very, 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 very hard trial in life. And we'll say something like, oh, that was just like hell. You know, I've ever heard Christians say this. But let's not say that. It's not like hell. No trial on this earth is anything like hell. Because right now, the wrath of God is not being poured out upon you. In fact... All, everyone is experiencing the common grace of God. Even the unregenerate in rebellion against him are still experiencing the common grace of God. So let us rightly understand this place of unquenchable flames where the judgment of God will be. It's dreadful, it's terrifying, it's fearful. But we know in Jesus Christ there is salvation from the wrath of God. Amen? And we can see what he gives us life in Christ, and not just life to get through the next 30, 40 years, but life eternally. And life in which that propitiation, that expiation, that propitiation of Christ is our guaranteed and given inheritance to what Lazarus 
saw is Abraham's bosom and a sinless life with Christ and the triune God. And so, as we think about some of these considerations, it's, it's first of all, it's very startling, but we can also see, can you see why Jesus says, oh, it's much better for you to lose an eye than for the whole body to go to hell, right? Oh, yes, we'd much rather lose an eye or an arm. But this is the place where the rich man is now, and he's pleading for help. The rich man neglected God, he turned on his back on God, he lived a life of ease, he served himself, he ignored Lazarus, and lived for him. And he didn't love God by respecting his law. He was focused on really building up things for himself. But notice, just like the theme Jesus has been conveying this entire chapter, the rich man, he didn't really appear to be this really wicked man in life. We're not given that idea during his life on earth. In fact, he might have been a man of, of rapport of some sort. He, he had a lot of wealth. He probably entertained people. Maybe he was even had a position in the, in the society. He uh, probably received praise from men of the uh, land because he was successful and rich. But it reminds us, doesn't it, that there's sins of omission and sins of commission. Because the rich man didn't, did not end up in Hades for what he had done, but what for, but for what he failed to do. He neglected to love God and his neighbor, and he re- disregarded God and his word. And what's amazing that, again, even once he was there in Hades, he remained unrepentant. He, he, I mean, he, think of what he could have done. Why didn't he just beg Abraham for mercy and saying, uh, yes, I've been bad, have mercy on me, Abraham. But he didn't even, do you notice he didn't even do that? He just said, oh, this is terrible. Help me. Get that servant to help me. There's no repentance. Even even there, even in that humbled state, he didn't go there. Um, So self-focused, he won't even call on Lazarus directly. You notice that? I mean, he, he really just belittled people his whole life. So, you know, Lazarus was just too much of a nothing man to even talk to. But he could talk to Abraham. Hey, Abraham, that guy that's right next... Wouldn't that be awkward? You know, it'd be like, you know, Henry, could you tell your dad hi for me? You know, it'd be like, what? But that's what he did. Abraham, that, this guy, whatever that guy serving, sitting right next to you, could you help, have him help me? Wow. And this, this, is, uh, this is ultimate partiality, right? That we see Jesus was not, not interested in. But... We need to remember that the life of the righteous is what? That of the repentant sinner who's humble, knowing that we were bought with a price, called to be the servants of all, not to be served upon, right? Remember the words of Jesus, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to, be, to serve, but to not, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. So, really, we've talked about this, but the complete irony of the, the full role reversal of these two men. Lazarus, Lazarus on earth wanted crumbs, but he got none. And now the rich man just wants a drop of cool water, but he doesn't get that. So even the smallest things. Well, the rich man calls out to Abraham, and Abraham actually denies this request. 
He essentially says, I can't help you, it's too late, right? For between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot and those who pass from there pass to us. And so what we see is the irrevocable judgment of God. And this connects back to Jesus' statement earlier in verse 16 that uh, Pastor Suisho talked about last week. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Jesus is saying there's an urgency to the times, an urgency to the gospel. The lost cannot just persist forever in unrepentance. Judgment is coming. Once judgment comes, you can't go back and forth between heaven and hell. And there's ideas out there. There's Catholic ideas of purgatory that are just not true. There's not this state where you can temporarily suffer and then somehow get purified by others and then go to heaven. It's not true. What we see here in our text is what's the truth. It's like a great chasm that exists between heaven and hell. It's impossible to just go back and forth between one another. And so the rich man, then he realizes, well, I guess I'm not going to get out of here. So then he has another plea. And this is interesting because now for the first time, he thinks about someone else. Maybe he's given up on his own life. But he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's still asking him to get Lazarus to go do things. <laughs> Maybe this Lazarus guy can go talk to my brothers. I mean, he must have thought somehow Lazarus was like, yeah, I'm going to leave heaven and go down to your brothers. You know, he's just, it's, it's really an interesting thinking. But despite this, he does think about somebody else. He has five brothers, apparently still on earth. And he knew, though, you know what he knew? That they disregarded God. He, he knew they were going to end up right next to him. So it's like, this is not going to go well for my bros, so we've got to do something about this. And uh, what does Abraham say? No. No, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, God's revelation has been given. The, this was, God's word is sufficient for them for salvation. They have the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so now the, the rich man makes a third plea. Okay, fine. They were, yes, they should have known and they should have trusted in you, God, but they didn't. But maybe... Maybe, Abraham, you could send them a sign. Maybe if someone comes back to life, maybe, maybe then, surely, they will repent and that will awaken them. But Abraham, again, says, no, no, no. They will not because, again, they have the revelation of God through Moses and the Scriptures. And, uh, and of course, Abraham says, even though one may rise from the dead, they still not repent. And of course, this was the ultimate foretelling rebuke to the Pharisees because the Pharisees do this to Jesus, right? He rose from the dead, and they're like, uh, he lied. It's not, it's not true. And of course, that was foretelling, which is very interesting for us to read this now. But it's really instructive to us that we cannot look for signs and wonders to perpetuate the gospel. God's given his truth. He's given his revealed word. We don't need new tricks and signs. Remember, Jesus said, 
unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Right? He, was, he was indignant. He's, he said, you, have, you people have to have these things to believe. Right? Because there's a tendency today, even right here today in 2022, to find some new way to bring people to Christ. I remember just a couple years ago, it was the Jesus film. Right? And, oh, this is going to be the best evangelical tool ever. And, you know, it's good. And then it just kind of fades. Because we, we have God's revealed truth. He's given us all things for life and godliness. And so we have this perfect, pure gospel. And so, as Abraham says, if they don't hear prophet, Moses and the prophets, God's given revelation, signs aren't going to work either. If someone rejects the written word of God, they will not be brought to repentance because someone rises from the dead. You remember Pharaoh's magicians. Well, they, did every, they could do all kinds of amazing things. It didn't save anyone, right? The Pharisees saw Jesus. Remember the other Lazarus in the Bible? Remember, remember the one that died? Jesus came too late, right? Remember, remember the Pharisees saw that. They were there. They saw Jesus raise him from the dead. And did they repent? No. What did they try to do? We're going to kill him. And this is the work, actually, that we talked about this morning, right? which is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We have the specific, the special revelation of God. We don't need another Jesus film. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. My brother brought a, a great point this morning to me after the message that what, what is illuminated by, by, by the Holy Spirit? It's our hearts. It's our hearts. It's our hearts that are veiled. I mean, no, it, nothing really changes in the Word as we talked about, right? And uh, this, this, this verse, listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. It's the heart. It's our hearts that are illuminated so we can see rightly. And this is, this is what we need, brothers and sisters. Right? Christ, our prophet, by his word and spirit, reveals to us God's will for salvation in our lives. So our hearts are veiled by sin, and the Holy Spirit shines light and removes the veil that we may praise God. So let us move on. Let me just uh, apply now this parable uh, to the context of our lives. We, as we mentioned, Jesus was admonishing the behaviors and sin of the Pharisees in this text. And so overall, we know the, the, the instruction is to, for Jesus is he was displaying the heart of the self-righteous that are foremost interested in the approval of man for external appearances, looking good on the outside, but inside, they're dead. Pastor Shuiso last week talked about the, the whitewashed tomb picture that Jesus gives. And I actually just want to read a little bit from Matthew 23. You might remember Jesus is rebuking uh, the Pharisees very directly, uh, scribes and Pharisees, during those chapters. And so let's just remember here, because this is, the, this is the main application for us, brothers and sisters, that we have to be on guard for, that we can be, can be in a position where we fall into self-righteousness too, right? Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you have ought, ought to have done without leaving the others undone, 
blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of lawlessness. And so, these are, these are significant rebukes, but they are also very, very important warnings for us against externalism, hypocrisy, looking good on the outside. But, but actually, Jesus gives a great teaching there. First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, meaning our hearts. Let's be pure in heart, that the outside may also be clean. And, uh, and there's quite a bit of interesting connections and parallels in this parable that we could go into, but uh, just for the sake of time, I'll just give you one. Again, you recall that Abraham responded uh, to the rich man and said, between us there's this great gulf, so that those who want to pass from one to the other from not. He's talking about from heaven to hell. Um, and, and it's like a grand canyon. You just you can't get across this thing. And so what's really profound is that in, in life, the Pharisees had created a great chasm between themselves and the social and moral outcasts of society. And that's who Jesus was who was hanging out with. You remember, the be, beginning of their complaints in, in, uh, in Luke 14, the, the Pharisees' complaint was that, oh, he, Jesus eats with the sinners, right? They, they, who, what he was talking about was they were the moral and social outcasts of society. And the Pharisees had distanced themselves so far, like a great chasm. Like, they couldn't even get to the Pharisees, right? And so these outcasts lived in... Religious economic poverty. And what the rich man did is exactly what the Pharisees did. I mean, you had these people. The Pharisees were, were imparting their, their law. But they could have gone and helped these people. And not only physically, but they could have imparted to them spiritual truth to help them. To, to give them health, as it were, spiritually. They could have given them the life-saving gospel and provided for them. So, of course, this goes along with not showing partiality, not being so consumed with ourselves and our own agendas that we don't have time to help others. But really something for us to consider is how are we seeking and reaching those who are lost, who are in need? And I mean both physically in need and spiritually in need. We talked about this morning, hiding the light of the gospel under a basket. Or do we put it on a stand for all to see? And how would we do that in our lives? Because what is this for the Christian? What do we need to do? We just need to summarize as Jesus did. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. These are the things the rich man didn't do. See, This is like the Pharisees, uh, as we talked about last week, You know, they, even they grow a little mint plant. And they got their 10% cut off of that. And they're tithing that. That's good, amen. But, but you're not loving the Lord your God with all your whole soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. You're, I kind of missed that big picture. So we, we foremost should love our neighbors spiritually. 
with concern for their soul. This is the Great Commission, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And secondly, we should, name, we should love our neighbors physically and cheerfully for the opportunity that we have to do this, right? That, that we can give. And Pastor Swanson read Psalm 112, speaking of the blessed. This is the blessed man. He is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. See, there's a, there is a selflessness here. There is a dying to self and a giving to the glory of God. And this is how we are to give, right? Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And and that's how we should see it. Giving as an opportunity to love and to serve and give. And the other thing we should consider, as by way of application, is what is it to be rich? We have a rich man here who was very, very rich and then all of a sudden became not rich at all. Because a truly rich person will share their spiritual and material wealth, won't they? And that's actually what we see from Lazarus. He did everything he could to trust in God. He didn't have anything to share, but he didn't complain, even though he was tormented. But but a a spiritually poverty-stricken person will not share their spiritual and material wealth. And this is exactly what we see in the rich man. He had gathered all this material wealth... And his real heart was revealed in the end, right? It was, it was just spiritual bankruptcy. And this is a warning to us because all of us in America, pretty much, are pretty, pretty rich. I mean, right? Even, I don't know, you might run into somebody that's begging and poor, um, but in some ways they're better off than Lazarus was and better off than many people around the world. And so we should... We should take this into consideration. What are we doing with, if God's given us more than we need, what are we doing with it? 1 Timothy 6 gives us a good exhortation. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives, all rich, gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Being rich isn't sinful, but we must steward what God's given us, that he's given it to us for a purpose. Not just to be like the rich man, but he's given us for his kingdom come. And so that's exciting. I mean, that's exciting. That's an opportunity. We should, okay, God, well, what do you want me to do with this? And it it can be, it could be money, but it just could be gifts. Remember the parable of the talents? It could be time. But most of all, it should be our love for God. It should be our love for God and His truth and our humble receiving of life through Christ that burns within our hearts that we want to exclaim to the world. That's the foremost thing that we should give. And so, a simple way for us to give and serve is to fix our eyes upon the calling and gospel of Jesus Christ recognize our lives here are not for our gain and glory, but for the majesty and glory of God so that we can give and serve and be rich to him in heaven. And finally, let us fulfill this commandment that we are to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, 
Let each of us esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. I think we do need to consider um, those physically in need more. I, I know I need to do that. And I think we all could do that. We need to consider others. We, we do need to look, you know, as it were, for the, the, the man upon the road. You know, Jesus gave some startling illustrations, like the, the Good Samaritan, that we, we really need to take to heart in America. I, I think foremost, I know for me, I know for some of you I've talked to, um, it, it can be our busyness. We, we have resources. We have things to give. It's just hard to stop, derail our plans for the day, and sit and talk to someone and help them. And may we be quickened by this. But ultimately, this is a call for all of us to repentance and faith, to check our hearts for any, is there any hint of self-righteousness in our hearts? And we have to recognize uh, the, the hatred that God has for this kind of hypocrisy. You heard Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, but now may we walk as children of faith and fulfill His commandments, not serving ourselves, but seeing how we can use what God has given us, both spiritually and physically, to love God and love our neighbors as ourself and give Him all the glory and honor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that you have given us this word tonight, and, and we, are, we are quickened, we are convicted by the gravity of your judgment and the sobriety it brings to our hearts uh, to consider um, that, that there, there, there's, no, there's no boring place after we die. There's no simple, uh, un, uh, untouched place by your hand There is eternal life in Christ Jesus, and there is the wrath of God poured out. Lord, help us to soberly consider these things. And as we do that, Lord, would you quicken our hearts to this truth that we've heard, this this conviction, this exhortation of Christ, that we need to check our hearts for self-righteousness. We do need to check our hearts for hypocrisy. We need to see how we are serving and giving spiritually and physically to those neighbors that you've placed us in proximity to. Oh God, use this for your kingdom and use it for our sanctification to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.